Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Well, yesterday it looked like the Dow's winning streak may have come to an end. We're up 10 days in a row, which was the biggest winning streak since 1987. The Dow was down oh, 50, 60 points for the entire day. I mean, it opened down and it stayed down until the very last hour. It started to rally. And I think just in the last 15 minutes managed to eke out a positive close to extend the the winning streak to 11 consecutive days and, of course, another record high for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. For those Bitcoin fans who are out there, I know a lot of you have given me crap because, you know, the price of Bitcoin has gone up. And just uh, this week, it got back above 1200 getting close to the price of gold. Oh, I forgot to even mention the price of gold, which was up again this week. We actually got as high as 1260 Remember on my last podcast, I said we were building up a lot of resistance around 1240 And I thought that we would take it out, and then we'd see a little bit of a jump. And that's exactly what we did. We closed, uh, I think, around 1257 You know, an interesting uh, observation, though, is that gold stocks were down in general on Friday. They were also down on Thursday. In fact, they had a sell-off at the very end of the day. And I think the last 2% rise in the price of gold, we've had about a 4% drop in gold stocks. Now, the gold stocks rose early on, and they did a very good job of forecasting this gold rally. So the question is, are the gold stocks now accurately forecasting a sell-off, a, uh, a, you know, maybe a profit-taking or a correction in the gold rally. That's possible. And if that is the case, I think that's going to be a great buying opportunity because I don't think the correction will be very long-lived or that deep. Uh, and I do expect much, much higher prices later in the year. But it's also possible that this skepticism on the part of gold traders. Obviously, if gold traders have been selling gold stocks these last several days, they thought that the price of gold was topping out. And so far, they've been wrong because the gold prices continue to rise despite the fact that gold stocks have been falling for a week. Now, maybe they're not wrong. Maybe they're just early, right? Maybe they're just getting out early and a big gold drop is coming, 
We'll see. But it's also possible that this is just a healthy uh, degree of skepticism, that gold is climbing this wall of worry. And in fact, gold traders are now so worried that they've been selling or gold stock traders are so worried because they've been selling their gold stocks even as the price of gold keeps rising. But if we continue to move, if we don't get a correction in the price of gold, if this is a breakout and now we're headed up to 1300 then I think these gold stocks, are they have a lot of lost ground to catch up. And so there could be a big move. But I wanted to finish what I just started talking about, uh, Bitcoin, you know, being above 1200 though, as I'm recording this on Saturday morning, it's back in the high 1100s now. But it's still, you know, it's still up a lot this year, certainly. Uh, but I'm going to be doing a debate on CNBC Fast Money on Monday, 5 o'clock Eastern Time, 2 o'clock Pacific Time, live CNBC Fast Money is the show, and uh, I'm going to be debating a Bitcoin guy. So it's going to be Bitcoin versus gold, which is the better investment. Obviously, I am going to be uh, taking the gold position. My unknown opponent, don't really know who it is, he's going to be arguing in favor of Bitcoin. So if you are one of these uh, Bitcoin guys, you might want to watch this. Remember, Fast Money, these are the guys that stop me. They don't let me put my... Uh, CNBC appearances on YouTube anymore. If they see them, they take them down. So you won't be able to see this on my YouTube channel. So the only way to see this debate is going to be to watch it live. So CNBC, 5 o'clock this Monday, and uh, the gloves will come off. And I will also be talking about gold money. And I've talked about that on this podcast before. But I think it's really gold money that really is going to be challenging Bitcoin and making it obsolete because the advantage, the advantage of, of Bitcoin is the ease with which you can transact in, right? But the problem is you're holding on to a hot potato. It's musical chairs. You're, Bitcoin itself, there is no real value to store. So yes, it's gone up recently, but it can come plunging down. Remember, it came plunging down, uh, you know, from 11, 1200 to 200 at one point. Who's to say that next time it goes down to 200, it won't keep on falling? I mean, there's a lot of risk there. So when you have gold money, you combine the safety right, of gold, the purchasing power, right, the longevity. You have 5,000 years of history. You combine all of that, all of the uh, store value properties of gold with all of the liquidity properties of Bitcoin. And so gold money basically makes the need for Bitcoin obsolete. Now, I know some people will say, well, but, you know, it's centralized versus decentralized, meaning like, you know, you need a storage. You need somebody to store the gold. You need a company like Brinks, right? Gold money uses Brinks uh, to uh, store uh, most of the gold. And so, oh, what if it gets stolen? Well, yeah, what happened to Mt. Gox? People had their Bitcoins over there. They got stolen. It's not like you, you don't have any counterparty risk. But look, you know, people have been storing gold safely uh, with companies like Brinks for, you know, I don't think it, there's never been any gold entrusted to Brinks that has ever been lost, right? No customer has ever lost any gold that they that they stored there. And I think you can reliably store uh, with with a with a third party. At least there's real value there to store. And of course, you know, you've also got governments and the fact that, you know, these bitcoins is all. Uh, digital. I mean, it's. I think it's very easy for governments to target it, governments to confiscate it. I. I think people are uh, overestimating the safety when it comes to uh, Bitcoin and the ability of governments not to screw with it, not to confiscate it, or now not to uh, make it make its ownership or its use illegal. I think that can easily happen. So, 
I don't see the downside in, uh, in entrusting your gold to a company like Gold Money. And you have all of the convenience, all of the ease, all of the features that most people find uh, desirable about Bitcoin are improved with gold money. So remember to uh, watch that again. It's CNBC. Fast Money is the name of the show. 5 p.m. Eastern Time on Monday. But, you know, really what seemed to be dominating was politics. Donald Trump gave a, another speech, this time in front of CPAC. And, you know, I was at CPAC one year when he was there. And I remember it was a, a year, I think, when when Ron Paul was uh, one of the uh, candidates uh, on the Republican side. And I remember he had some very harsh things to say about uh, about Ron Paul. I can't remember if that's the last time I personally heard him speak at CPAC. I haven't been going. I used to go every year when I was doing the radio show. But since then, I, I haven't I haven't been going back. But. You know, Donald Trump today, every time he gives a speech, it seems like he's still campaigning. You know, so Donald Trump is still running for president, even though he's president. And, you know, one of the things that I was hoping for with Trump is that he would understand the difference between what you have to say to get elected and then what you do once you are elected. But it seems that Donald Trump still wants to continue uh, to promise painless solutions to our problems, right? He still seems like he's trying to get votes. He already has the votes. He won. And what I'm looking for Donald Trump is to come clean and say some of the things that he was afraid to say as a candidate, because if he said them as a candidate, he may not have been elected. But now that he is elected, it's not just about keeping your so-called promises. It's about doing what's right. And I know that if he was more candid about doing what was right, as a candidate, then he wouldn't have become the president. But now that he is president, uh, he has this opportunity. Now, it's still early. It still remains to be seen what's going to happen. You know, there is still conflicting uh, messages from Donald Trump. On the one hand, he talks about this huge debt he inherited and how we have to be frugal, how we have to cut back on government spending. But then, of course, he's not actually talking about actually making any substantive cuts to government spending. Uh, so we'll have to see if President Trump ends up governing in a way that is different different from the way he campaigned. I want to talk, though, about the tax reform. He didn't say anything specific in his speech at CPAC about the tax reform. You remember a week or so ago, he said something big is coming very soon. And since then, we haven't really had any indication of what that something big would be. Of course, the corporate tax reform is all bogged down over not whether or not we're going to be able to include a border-adjusted tax, which would allow Congress to lower the corporate income tax to 20%, yet still generate a lot of revenue by not allowing corporations, or I assume any business, uh, to deduct the cost of their imports from their cost of goods sales, which would effectively impose a 20% tax on all those imports. Now, I've already explained why this is a non-starter in an earlier podcast, and I still haven't heard anybody talk about this. The fact that it will result in people buying stuff online from other countries to avoid that 20% tax rather than going to an actual store in the United States. So it really would be the death of U.S. retailing 
were this to come in, which is another reason why it's not. What they really need to do is just an across-the-board 20% tariff on all goods coming into the United States so that you have to pay the tax even if you're buying it directly uh, through an online vendor. Uh, so then the retailers in the U.S. would now be competitive. They wouldn't be forced out of the market. But one of the discussions I was listening to on CNBC, and it just shows you how clueless uh, people are with respect to the, the true state of the U.S. economy. But the, the conversation basically was, well, you know, do we really need all these cheap goods coming in from China? I mean, would it be so bad if, you know, we didn't have them? Because, look, we didn't have them in the 1990s, right? We didn't have this huge trade deficit with China in the 1990s. And the 1990s were a prosperous decade, the way you know, they remembered it. Of course, CNBC loved it because they had the, the dot-com boom. But the idea is, you know, why don't we just go back to that? I mean, even if we make imports 20% more expensive, I mean, maybe Americans will just deal with it because obviously they dealt with it in the 1990s or the 1980s. So why can't we deal with it now? And, you know, maybe if we don't import them, we'll just make them ourselves. And so what's, what's the problem? And it shows people just do not understand the degree to which the economy has changed for the worse uh, since the, the 1990s. But you can have a similar conversation about women in the labor force. I mean, somebody could say, hey, why do we have all these women working? I mean, why couldn't we just go back to the way it was in the 1950s? I mean, women didn't work by and large in the 1950s, at least not if they were married. I mean, maybe if they were still single, they might have had a job, but no married women had jobs really in the 1950s. I mean, there were exceptions and they were generally, you know, these high-powered career gals that really were doing something. Uh, but, you know, your typical middle-class uh, woman who was married to your typical middle-class man, she didn't have a job. That doesn't mean she didn't work. She did housework. She took care of the kids. She got involved in the community and charities and things like that. But she didn't go out and collect a paycheck. And so you can say, well, why don't we just go back to that? Well, we can't go back to that because the husbands cannot afford to support their wives today the way they could afford to support them in the 1950s. And what's changed about America? Well, we have a much bigger government, so taxes are much higher, and we don't have the high-paying jobs that we used to have back in the 1950s thanks to years and years of regulation and taxes that have driven those jobs out of existence. So it is no longer conceivable or possible for most women not to work outside the home because they can't marry a man who is capable of supporting them. Of course, back in the 1950s, if you just married your butcher, your baker, your candlestick maker, it didn't matter, right? Anybody, school teacher, bus driver, you could afford to support a wife. Now you've got to marry a guy that makes a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. He's got to be a professional, right, in order to support a stay-at-home mom. That wasn't the case in the 1950s. And people who don't recognize that distinction, hey, let's just go back to the days when women didn't work. Well, if we want to go back to those days, we've got to go back to the high productivity, small government economy that existed back then, right? Same thing with not needing Chinese imports. I mean, one of the reasons that the economy didn't collapse over the years was because of this huge influx of women into the labor force. If women never joined the labor force, there's no way we could have had this enormous government. It would have collapsed a long time ago. 
Same thing with Chinese imports. I mean, people talk about, hey, Peter Schiff, you know, you, you talk about all this money printing and quantitative easing, and you've been warning about inflation. But look, there's no inflation. Where's all the inflation? Well, can you imagine what would have happened to consumer prices in this country had we not been able to import all these products from China and other places? They would have skyrocketed. One of the reasons that U.S. businesses did not have to raise prices to the consumer in the face of all this money printing, all this inflation that was actually being created, one of the reasons that that inflation did not result in higher prices to consumers is because businesses found a way to get around the increasing domestic costs by outsourcing, by importing. They found this way to bring in goods from Mexico, bring in goods from China, and that was able to, to uh, keep them from having to raise prices the way they would have had to have raised prices had they had to continue producing the products domestically. There you would have seen the, the results of all this money printing. You would have seen much bigger increases in consumer prices. But because they had this outlet, because American businesses could now import lower cost products from Mexico or China or other places, the consumer didn't feel the impact of inflation when he went shopping. But he did feel it in his paycheck. Because in order to keep prices low, a lot of higher paying jobs in America were sacrificed. Right? So wages may have gone down. But prices didn't go up as much. So, of course, real wages are going down. So Americans are feeling the inflation in that respect, in that maybe prices aren't going up, but their income is going down. And so on a relative basis, it's the same thing. But the government can still claim that there's no inflation. Hey, look, look, there's no inflation. Sure, because all these products that we used to make in America, we now import cheaper from China. Now, you take away all those cheap imports and now Americans are going to be hit in the face with a couple of decades of inflation all at once. All of a sudden, the cost of living would skyrocket and people would really feel the full impact of all this inflation that thus far many Americans have been spared the impact because we've been able to outsource and import. Now, the Americans who haven't been spared are maybe the people who lost their jobs in the process, but the people who didn't, there are people, of course, who didn't lose their jobs. I mean, let's say you're a lawyer. Unfortunately, we haven't figured out how to outsource lawyers, so we still have all these lawyers in this country. None of them have lost their jobs. In fact, there are more lawyers than ever before. So now all these lawyers, uh, they get the benefit of their higher paychecks because they're a lawyer, and now they have all these cheap products that they can buy that are coming in from China and Mexico and every place else. But the guy that used to work in the factory that made the products that Americans used to buy, who lost his job because they had to outsource instead, and now he's got two or three low-paying part-time jobs, that guy doesn't really benefit very much from the, uh, the cheap uh, uh, Chinese products because his wages have collapsed. But at this point, you take away those cheap Chinese products, his, his factory job's not coming back because that factory's gone. Right. So now all of a sudden you're going to give them a, 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 a knockout punch. You're going to say, hey, you got this low paying job, but now you're going to have to pay much higher prices for your goods. You're not even going to get that one bit of relief. And, you know, one of the things, too, that has happened, I've, I've talked about this and it doesn't really reflect in the CPI at all. But one of the disadvantages to 
everything being imported and having to be shipped, you know, across the Pacific Ocean is that every nothing is assembled anymore. Everything that you buy is in boxes, right? So you want to buy a desk, for example, uh, that was made in China. You know, you order it on Amazon and it comes in this gigantic box and you've got all kinds of screws uh, and sometimes you can understand the directions. Usually when I want to assemble something, I got I to gotta go on YouTube and try to find a video where somebody else has assembled it and I can see how they're doing it. Because a lot of times it's hard to even understand uh, these things. A lot of this stuff is kid stuff, right? You want to buy anything for your kids. It's all in China and it all comes in boxes with lots of screws and stuff. And, and sometimes it takes me two or three hours to put this stuff together. Now, you know, none of that is reflected in the CPI. You know, what's your time worth? So when America used to make these products, right, you would go to the store and the product would already be assembled and they would just deliver it to your house and, and that was it, right? It was already built. It was there in the showroom and you bought it. Now, maybe let's say I, I buy something uh, fully assembled and it was $200 and now I buy the same thing from China and it's $150 and the government claims, well, you know, it's cheaper. See, there's no inflation. Prices went down. But if it takes three hours of my time to build it, you know, what's my time worth? You know, it's, it's you know, so when you factor in the, the time that you have to spend where you could either be working and generating more income or you could be enjoying leisure, unless you just like putting together this stuff. But in many cases, it's very frustrating. You know, the worst thing is when I put some of this stuff together, I'm halfway through and then I realize I got something wrong and I got to take it all apart and start all over again. I mean, sometimes, too, there's things that, you know, you put it together and at least there's a 50-50 shot that you'd put it on the right way because, you know, there's two sides, let's say. Well, whenever there's a 50-50 chance that I'm going to get something right when it comes to assembling something, I always get it wrong. It's just like Murphy's Raw, right? If there's a way to get it wrong, it seems like I do it. So it takes a lot of time, and sometimes it's very, very frustrating when you have to put this stuff together. I would much prefer to buy a product that was already completed and made in America, but that doesn't happen anymore because it's too expensive thanks to the inflation that's been created, thanks to the regulations, thanks to the taxes. And so when people want to talk about, hey, let's just go back to the 1990s, we can't do that. We don't. The economy has degenerated dramatically during this period of time. The factories that were here don't exist anymore. And the economy is now addicted to these low-cost goods. I mean, imagine how many people shop at Walmart, right? What is the secret to Walmart's success? Why are prices so low? It's because nothing they sell is made here. And these companies have developed these huge channels, supply channels, all over the world to bring all this stuff in to these stores so that Americans can buy it cheap. And all of this was done to protect consumers from the inflation that the Federal Reserve was creating, to protect consumers from the added cost of regulation and litigation that was driving up business and manufacturing costs in the U.S. But what is the flip side of this? Because it's all cost-benefit, right? For decades now, we've been able to enjoy the benefits of cheap foreign imports. But at what cost? Well, we've already seen it in a deterioration of the quality jobs that used to exist in this country producing these products. So those people have already felt that. But what very few people seem to understand is the enormous debt that has been accumulated during this time period. You know, this is what's made it possible. How have we financed all these trade deficits? 
we have borrowed all the money, right? We've had huge trade deficits year after year after year. And America has gone from being the world's biggest creditor nation in the early 1980s to being the world's biggest debtor nation now. We have squandered our wealth buying these cheap foreign imports. We have sacrificed uh, our future to indulge our present. Nobody seems to get this. You know, and even a lot of smart guys, as I said, are out there on television saying, hey, trade deficits aren't bad because they enable us to have capital surpluses. Capital surpluses are bad. We are selling off our assets. We are going into debt. We are becoming poorer when we sell off our businesses uh, to foreigners, when we, when we borrow from foreigners and issue them bonds, and then we take the money and spend it. And so now we're in debt. We're in debt to our trading partners. Uh, we owe them money, or now they own our assets, they own our companies, and we have to pay them dividends, or they own our real estate, and we have to pay them rent. So America is now poor because of years and years and years of borrowing money to buy inexpensive foreign products. And if you just all of a sudden make those foreign products more expensive, but you don't change anything else, you know, there's just going to be a huge collapse. The only thing that we could do, if we don't want to buy all those products, then we have to uh, recreate the free market conditions. You know, Donald Trump was uh, talking about the deals. He keeps saying, you know, we, we, we lose with everybody. We don't win with anybody. We have a trade deficit with everybody. And of course, it's, we, there are some countries where we have some surpluses. But by and large, he's right. You know, we have trade deficits. And of course, the deficits we have with some countries are enormous. So we may have some small surpluses with countries here and there. But they're nothing like the deficits that we have with other countries, right? That's why we have a net trade deficit every year of about $500 billion. And Donald Trump is like, well, this is because we have these bad deals. We've negotiated these bad deals and we've lost. It's not about the deals. That's not why we have deficits. It's because we're uncompetitive. And it's also because of the tax code that we have and the monetary policy that we have that is encouraging consumers to go into debt. You see, consumers in most countries... If they don't have the money, they don't buy something. Americans, they never let lack of income or lack of money stop them from buying. They just go out and buy, right? You just charge it. You buy it on a credit card. And all these retailers have all kinds of gimmicks, you know, buy now, no payments for two years or whatever it is. I mean, so Americans go out and buy all kinds of stuff that they can't afford. And that's also what's driving the trade deficits is all this excess consumption uh, where Americans are living beyond their means. And of course, you know, the government doles out a lot of welfare, a lot of food stamps, a lot of disability. People go out and buy stuff. They didn't earn any money. They didn't produce anything. They don't have anything to trade with the rest of the world. So we just have all this paper. We, we create all this debt. So there's no way that Trump is going to solve this problem by having smarter people go renegotiate NAFTA or renegotiate the TTP. You know, none of that is going to make a difference. Now, to the extent that we make it more difficult to import because we have tariffs or other ways to protect American business, then the impact initially is going to be quite painful for Americans because they're going to see a big increase in their cost of living because now, you know, all these, uh, uh, all these prices are going to be much higher. Now, it may slow down the accumulation of our debt, right? Our trade deficits may be smaller. And, you know, a lot of people think, well, if we have smaller trade deficits, 
that means that the dollar is going to strengthen. I don't think it means that at all. I mean, I think we still have enormous trade deficits, and I think the dollar is going to weaken. In fact, one of the reasons that so many countries have propped up the dollar is so they can maintain their surpluses, so they can keep on selling goods to America that Americans can't afford. But to the extent that America becomes less important, then the need to prop up the dollar also becomes less important, and the dollar could tank as a result of having smaller trade deficits. In fact, I think ultimately our trade deficits are going to disappear and the dollar is going to collapse. In fact, one of the reasons that our trade deficits are going to disappear is because the dollar is going to lose so much value, we're not going to be able to afford to import anything. But this is the consequence of years and years of relying on foreign factories for our goods because now when we can't afford to import those products anymore, we don't have the capacity to do it ourselves. We don't have... The, the machines anymore, the equipment, we don't have the skilled workforce. How do we get all that stuff back? We get it all back by recreating a free market economy, but this is where the pain comes in. This is where the big cuts come in. You know, I was listening to a Treasury Secretary Mnuchin talking about the tax cuts, and what he was saying is that they are primarily focused on middle-class tax relief, that we are focusing on the middle class. And yes, that's great. Uh, when you're campaigning, because that's where the votes are, right? The middle class is where you get all the votes. But this is not good economics. I mean, first of all, if you're talking about tax policy that may result in more economic growth, the, the best thing would be to just abolish the corporate tax, right? Not even think about cutting uh, the personal tax, get rid of the corporate tax, stop taxing capital, or if anything, just lower the marginal tax rate, which of course will disproportionately benefit the rich if you just reduce the marginal rate. But by reducing the marginal rate of tax, you increase the incentive to work and you diminish the reward for not working because now leisure, when taxes go down, leisure becomes more expensive, right? Because the higher the taxes are, the cheaper it is not to work or take a vacation or retire early because so much of what you're making is going to the government. But when you lower taxes, then you make leisure more expensive and you create a, a greater incentive for, for people to work. So there are tax cuts that would be growth oriented. But if you just cut taxes on the middle class, all that's going to do is increase the deficit. I mean, people are not necessarily going to work harder uh, because there's a tax cut for the middle class. They're just going to have more money to spend. But the government is not going to spend less. They're not going to cut spending. So all you create is inflation. You create larger deficits. And now the Federal Reserve has to print the money that the government is no longer collecting in taxes. And so the tax cuts don't actually do any good because all you're doing is creating more spending, but you're not creating more goods, right? Our trade deficits will rise. If Americans get a tax cut, they'll just buy more goods uh, made in China, right? So we'll run up the trade deficit. That's all that's going to happen. We create more inflation. If you really want to give tax cuts to the middle class because you think they deserve it, well, then you have to cut government spending. You have to make government less expensive so that government is a lower burden on the taxpayer. I mean, the reality is, if you want to be honest, Americans need tax hikes. If you really believe in all the government that we have, right, if you don't think we should cut Social Security, if you don't think we should cut defense, if you don't think we should cut, uh, you know, government pensions, if you want, you know, a bigger military, if you want a more expensive military, if you want, you know, to build the infrastructure, if you want all that, then we have to pay higher taxes. In fact, 
if you, even if we don't get more government spending, if we just want to preserve the government spending we have now, we need higher taxes because these deficits are more destructive to the economy than the taxes that would replace them if we just raised them. So the reality is all these politicians want to talk about how Americans deserve tax cuts. They actually, they don't. They, they deserve tax hikes unless they want to say, you know what? I don't want all this government. Cut all this government spending, including my entitlements. Yes, cut Social Security and Medicare that I think I'm going to get when I get older, which I'm probably not going to get anyway. And yeah, you can cut my taxes right now. That's when Americans can have lower taxes. But if you want to lower taxes in a way that will stimulate economic growth, just targeting the middle class for some kind of tax benefit, that is not what's going to do it. You have to cut taxes in a way that will incentivize a capital investment, savings, underconsumption, real economic growth, right? Not just enable more spending because that's the Keynesian view. Yeah, a Keynesian is going to say, of course, cut taxes for the middle class. That's great because it's going to increase aggregate demand, right? A Keynesian is in favor of anything that causes more spending, right? Increase government spending. In fact, these idiot Keynesians, they think that cutting government spending is a bad idea because it takes purchasing power away from the recipients of the government money. So the Keynesian is in favor of tax cuts and spending increases at the same time. In fact, if you say we need to pay for the tax cut by cutting government spending, the Keynesians think that that's, you know, you're working at cross purposes, that you're canceling each other out, that whatever stimulus you get from the tax cut is negated by the spending cut. But of course, I mean, this is like a little kid believing in Santa Claus. That's really what Keynesians believe in is the economic equivalent of Santa Claus. Because they don't understand that the government doesn't have any money. And if the government gives money to one person to spend, it has to take it away from somebody else. Now, it doesn't necessarily have to do it through taxation. It can do it through inflation. It can create the money, right? Because we live in this society with fiat money, we don't have any real money. Governments can just create money out of thin air. They can create the illusion that they create purchasing power by just creating money. They don't. All they do is create claims to the existing stock of wealth, to the existing supply of goods and services. So prices go up. They don't create any real demand when you print money, but these Keynesians, you know, or these guys that believe in this, you know, modern MMP, modern monetary theory, whatever it's called, whatever this nonsense is, they don't understand the negatives. That's why they don't they have no they have no problem with the debt. They don't care about our national debt, 20 trillion, 30 trillion. It doesn't matter. We can just print the money. They don't understand why people are even worried about the debt because we can just print money. They don't understand the consequences of money printing. And the only reason that the dollar hasn't already collapsed is because our trading partners haven't figured out that we're going to print all this money, that we have no way of legitimately repaying this debt with taxation and money that has actual purchasing power. So once people figure out that this is what we're going to do, then the dollar is going to collapse. And it doesn't matter how many dollars the government can create. I mean, if you create money that nobody wants, what good is it? Yes, as long as people are dumb enough to take it, governments can go along and play this game. But, you know, it's it's monopoly. This is monopoly money. There is no difference between dollars or euros or yen than monopoly money. And everybody knows monopoly money is worthless. The difference is people don't realize that in real life they're playing with monopoly money because, you know, you can just create all the money you want, right? And people just think that it has value. It doesn't have any value, right? It's just a piece of paper. It's an IOU nothing, right? It doesn't confer any value on anything.
But what it does do is it transfers purchasing power for, to the recipient of the money. So if the government creates money and gives it to somebody, that person now can buy things just as if he had earned the money. But now somebody who didn't earn the money now has to compete with that person for the things that he wants to buy. And so that person is going to bid up prices. I mean, it's just basic. But for some reason, so many people don't understand the, the difference between money and wealth. And that's why they don't they don't worry about, oh, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, U.S. Treasuries, you know, it doesn't matter. It shouldn't even be rated. It doesn't, you know, because they're never going to default. Even if they never default, that doesn't mean that the people who buy treasuries are going to get their purchasing power back. That is the point. And when any time you're looking at sovereign debt, it's never about whether or not they're going to default. Obviously, if you create your own money, if you borrow in your own currency, there is no reason that the U.S. government ever has to default on its debt if it doesn't care what the dollar is worth, right? If the U.S. government doesn't care if the dollar is completely worthless, then yes, it never has to default on its debt. And if you're a creditor and you don't mind being repaid in worthless money, then you don't have to worry about default, right? If you don't care, if it, all you care about is getting your paper back and it doesn't even matter to you whether you could buy anything with it, then I guess you don't have to worry. But obviously that's not the case. The government doesn't want the dollar to be worthless because then the government has no power if it, if it, it can't create any money that anybody wants. And of course, creditors don't want to be repaid with worthless money. Nobody is that dumb. And that means that there is a debt crisis coming because something has to happen. Something has to prevent the dollar from collapsing. Something has to prevent hyperinflation. And that is where all the sacrifice comes in. That's where all the pain comes in that everybody who is correctly warning about these large deficits understands. And with all the Pollyannas that think the people who are warning about the deficits, you know, they don't get it because they don't understand that we could just print money. They do understand that we could just print money. Any idiot can understand that we could print money. It's the idiots who think money printing is so good and who can't see all the downside of the money printing. They're the ones that are that are making the mistake, not the people like me or like, you know, Jimmy Rogers or, or Mark Faber or any of the people who are out there warning about the catastrophe that's looming as a result of all the debt. It's the Pollyannas that say, hey, don't worry about it because we have a printing press. They're the ones who don't get it.